Hello and welcome to Story Creatures, a Nashville podcast for artists and the stories they have to tell. From short stories and personal essays to poems and plays, we have a little bit of everything. I'm Madeline Hicks, local art maker and pie baker, and you are listening to episode four, Magic. I've been thinking a lot about magic lately, and this is in large part due to Elizabeth Gilbert. She is the writer of Big Magic, but you probably know her from Eat, Pray, Love. She is really inspirational to me because she talks a lot about creativity and specifically how to overcome fear, the fear of failure, not being good enough, not making anything important or meaningful. She goes a lot into how to sort of get out of your comfort zone as an artist and to overcome whatever obstacles you have in your way. I've joked a couple times about how reading her book feels like drinking the Kool-Aid because it does have a cultish effect on me where I'm reading it and all of a sudden I'm like really hyped up like yeah like yeah that's so right that's so true that's so me like I can just I can really relate to a lot of it because I have struggled with uh, self-doubt and um, you know having a hard time overcoming some of my well, self-inflicted obstacles artistically, but I'm getting better at it. And, you know, one thing Shirley talks about is how we think the stakes are higher than they actually are. Here is an excerpt from her book. She says, Pure creativity is magnificent, expressly because it is the opposite of everything else in life that's essential or inescapable. Food, shelter, medicine, rule of law, social order, community responsibility, sickness, loss, death, taxes, etc. Pure creativity is something better than a necessity. It's a gift. It's the frosting. Our creativity is a wild and unexpected bonus from the universe. I remember when I was in college a few years ago, One of my acting professors saying, you know, theater is great, but you're not doctors. You're not firefighters. You're not saving people's lives. And that really stuck with me. Art is beautiful because we don't need it. It's not food or water. It's better. It's more. It's a reason to live and a way to communicate and share to people, but we don't need it. And That's what makes it so great. Our featured artist today is the lovely Emily Wamelsta. She has a BA in English and a BFA in Cinematic Arts. She studied mythology and contemporary narrative fiction. She studied screenwriting under the late Jack Gilbert, who ran the Warner Brothers Writers' Workshop for 10 years. She makes documentaries. She writes novels. She does screenwriting and... She's one of those people that when you meet her, you can tell she's just so genuinely and unapologetically passionate about what she does, and that's really refreshing. So I enjoyed hearing her essay and then talking with her afterwards, and I think that you will too. So here is Emily with an essay she wrote called Love Triangles in Successful Science Fiction and Fantasy Franchises. Three of the most successful science fiction and fantasy franchises of the last decade, The Hunger Games, The Vampire Diaries, and Twilight, have featured female protagonists engaged in complicated love triangles that directly affect the outcome of the series as a whole. 
Due to the rapidly changing cultural norms of the last century, young Americans are turning neither to their parents nor to their elders for life advice, but rather to media and to literature, which have often served as babysitter, entertainer, and educator. Successful franchises such as The Vampire Diaries, The Hunger Games, and The Twilight Saga, both in their novel and film or television forms, have provided this generation with sympathetic heroines who face moral, sexual, and professional dilemmas in a fantasy world that mirrors reality without the inconvenience of being bound to it. This paper argues that these three franchises are successful in part because the dilemma of the love triangle parallels and informs the choice between the safety of a traditional life, characterized by marriage and motherhood, and the unknowns of a life lived primarily outside of domestic responsibilities, characterized by career and adventure, that this generation of young women, like no generation before it, now faces. Much of this paper is predicated on the idea that each of these franchises consists of three main characters, the heroine, the knight in shining armor, and the bad boy. For the purposes of this paper, the knight in shining armor will be defined as the male character whom the reader or audience expects the heroine to end up with in the end. So for Twilight, that's Edward, for Hunger Games, that's Peta, and for Vampire Diaries, Stefan. The knight represents a more traditional lifestyle. He is safe, protective, reserved, and choosing him is equivalent to choosing marriage and children. The bad boy will be defined as the male character who the heroine is attracted to, but wary of. He represents a more modern, non-traditional lifestyle. He is dangerous, unpredictable, sexual, and mysterious. Choosing him is equivalent to choosing a career or an adventure over a domestic setting. In myth, literature, and media, there is a historical precedent for love triangles that instructs not only characters, but also readers or audience members in how they should fit in with and make life decisions within their society. In uh, Arthur, Pride and Prejudice, and Casablanca, the reader and audience learns valuable information about the role and responsibility of an individual in a larger culture by observing how the consequences of the love triangle affects the hero or heroine. Guinevere and Arthur and Lancelot destroy an entire kingdom through selfish desire, Elizabeth finds a way to be an independent woman in a misogynist world, and Rick regains his sense of purpose and selflessness. Without going through the experience of a love triangle, none of these characters would have found their true place in the world. But the guidance that an audience can pull from the concept of a love triangle has never come to such a head as it has in the Twilight, Hunger Games, and Vampire Diaries franchises. These stories would not have been written had America not gone through a radical change over the past century and developed the modern young adult genre, an age group that 100 years ago did not exist. In Generation Multiplex, Timothy Sherry recounts how, in the early 1900s, there was a much smaller time period between childhood and adulthood, with only 6.4% of Americans completing high school at all. Many left their homes at the age of 14 to work and often were married with kids by age 18. There was very little time between being a child and having a child. With post-World War II prosperity, more children stayed in school and eventually went to college, postponing marriage and career until their 20s. The new widespread use of the automobile also afforded this new teenager social strata a way to get away from their parents and guardians and dip their toes into the world of adult pleasures and dangers. With the radio, rock and roll, and many 18-year-old males being drafted into the Vietnam War, the teen-slash-young adult population rallied into an identifiable group. Now, with options opening up more and more for both genders, young adults are taking longer and longer to decide what they want to do with their lives. 
An article titled, Is Your College Graduate Moving Back Home?, states that the current generation of college students is being referred to as the boomerang generation, for moving away for a short time and then returning home. Uh, this is a quote. According to a survey conducted by the consulting firm 20-something Incorporated, 85% of 2011 college graduates moved back home, at least for a while. The article says that most people blame the economy and the fiercely competitive job market. Having a college degree once meant having a job waiting in the wings, or at least the promise of one. Now it often translates to unemployment and massive debt. A Huffington Post article stated that 2011 college graduates averaged $27,000 in student loan and credit card debt. Even more alarming, debt at graduation is outpacing starting salaries. While many college grads may want to strike out on their own, they are finding it financially impossible to survive, and while they may feel mature after four years in an institution of higher learning, returning to one's childhood home can create a stigma of perpetuated adolescence. According to a USA Today article, not only do national statistics forecast a continued decline in the percentage of males on college campuses, but the drops are seen in all races, income groups, and fields of study. It makes sense, then, that boys tend toward video games for their fantasy lives, a form of extended childhood play, while girls tend towards reading books and more traditionally intellectual activity. The successes of The Vampire Diaries, The Hunger Games, and Twilight as a TV show and movies, respectively, is largely due to the massive following the stories and characters had from the book franchise, all read by an audience that was and is primarily female. But being educated has only put more stress on the traditional role of women as wives, mothers, and domestic caretakers. A woman is equally likely to be criticized or shamed for being a quote-unquote career bitch as she is for being a soccer mom. There seems to be no answer at all to the question, what does a modern American woman look like? Those who try to do both, have a career and be a wife and mother, often find themselves failing or feeling as if they are failing at one or the other. Those who choose a career first and children second sometimes feel that too much time has gone by and they are too old to be mothers. Conversely, those who have children first often find themselves passed by, their educations obsolete and their training archaic in a world where the amount of information is said to double every two years. It is fascinating to note that the uh, authors of Twilight and Hunger Games, Stephanie Myers and Suzanne Collins, are both wives and mothers who, after having children, wrote record-breaking hit book series that catapulted them to unprecedented financial and critical success. The heroines of both of those series choose the knight in shining armor and settle down with their husbands and children by the end of the last book. L.J. Smith, the author of Vampire Diaries, is not married, nor does she have children. Hers is the only heroine who actually, at one point, chooses the bad boy. She is also the only author to have been replaced by a ghostwriter after disputes with her publisher went sour on not one but two book series, suggesting that, in real life, choosing the non-traditional route can have its own dangers. In an interview, L.J. Smith said, I do have a strange, strong feeling that despite Alloy, her publisher, wanting my name on the cover of the books, they don't want me around, which would make sense given that the books have become a worldwide commodity. At least for the television series, Elena's fate is still muddled and unclear, and so is L.J. Smith's, with great confusion arising between her original story, the changes of the ghostwriter, and the adaptation the story took when it went to television. The actions of the heroines in the various franchises seems to reflect the life choices of their authors. And yet these authors are middle-aged women born a generation or two before the audiences that consume their books. Thus, when the teenage heroines Bella and Katniss end up in happily wedded bliss, it rings false for many actual teenage readers who have not grown up in an era where 18-year-olds desire marriage soon after high school, if they desire it at all.
What does ring true are the heroine's isolation from traditional family structures. In Vampire Diaries, Hunger Games, and Twilight, one or both parents of the heroine are either gone or dysfunctional. These girls are left without a proper, or present in the case of Twilight, mother figure, and must rely on a variety of unauthoritative sources to help them navigate their romantic feelings. As they are coming into adulthood and preparing to embark on a life route that they will presumably stay on for the rest of their lives, the knight in shining armor and the bad boy represent two different but equally appealing paths. As mentioned before, the knight leads to stability, romance, and family. The bad boy leads to adventure, sexual fulfillment, and independence. Choosing either one of these men will result in losing the other, and therefore the lifestyle that is associated with them. Not only does the heroine not have a parental figure, but the knight, as opposed to the bad boy, in many respects becomes both boyfriend and parent, protecting, physically, emotionally, and financially, and guiding. When she is faced with a dilemma, she may consult both men. The knight will often give her sound moral advice, much like a parent would, and the bad boy may also give her advice, but it may not align with accepted moral codes, or he may not give her advice at all, leaving the decision up to her, and enabling her, ironically, to behave more like an adult by making her own decision. This is especially true in the Damon, Stefan, Elena triangle on The Vampire Diaries. Both men desire to protect the heroine, but this tends to be limited to physical protection by the bad boy and physical, emotional, and mental protection by the knight. Who the heroine chooses reveals how she wishes to be treated, as a child in need of protection, or as an adult with equal partnership. The knight wants someone he can protect, the bad boy wants someone who can hold her own. The heroine has to decide not which boy she wants to pick, but which girl she wants to be. This resonates with many female viewers, regardless of age, not because their mothers are dead or even absent, but because the past few decades have seen each successive generation of women living radically different lives than their mothers. There is no accepted norm anymore to conform to. It is no wonder that the category of young adult exists at all. When adolescents are told you can be anything you want to be, and it's more or less true, it takes a great deal of time, say most of your 20s, to wade through the options and settle on something that should satisfy you for a lifetime. Even with parental guidance, the landscape for women today is so dramatically different than it was a generation before, and likewise, the same can be said for the previous generation looking back at their parents, that parental, especially maternal, advice may be misguided, outdated, naive, or irrelevant. Thus, even if the heroines of these stories had mothers to turn to for advice, they would still be forced by the current culture to confront the vast possibilities virtually on their own. Thus is the heroine presented with her options. Although traditionally the knight has been the one the heroine goes home with at the end of the day while the bad boy is a rebellious fling, that mindset may be changing. In Hunger Games, Katniss goes on her dangerous adventures, chooses the knight, Peta, then settles down and has children with him an ending that many say is incongruent with the character's arc, or at least very poorly explained. Not much is mentioned about Gale, the bad boy, or his final fate. Once Katniss chooses Peeta, Gale receives a paltry footnote that is frustrating to readers and audiences alike, precisely because who Katniss chooses, and who she will one day become, is one of the central questions of the series. To have it wrapped up as an afterthought is dissatisfying, because audiences cannot follow Katniss's decision-making process or perceive the reason for the choice she has finally made, and thus cannot emulate her story and choices in their own lives. In Twilight, Bella chooses the knight, Edward, over the bad boy, Jacob. She gets her family, a daughter, and a perfect ending, forever in love with her soulmate, but Jacob is not left out in the cold. 
He imprints on Bella's daughter and waits excitedly for the seven years it will take her to reach adulthood, where she'll be able to reciprocate his romantic feelings for her, an ending, again, that leaves many feeling uncomfortable. In Vampire Diaries, although Elena has at almost every step along the way chosen the knight, Stefan, here in season four, and here I refer to the show as opposed to the book, the knight has proven himself to be inadequate, and it looks like she may well choose the bad boy. This shift is largely in response to the fact that Elena herself has changed. She is no longer a soft human, she is a violent vampire, and she needs a man that can appreciate this new side of her. The knight cannot love her as a vampire, he can only love her as she was, human. The bad boy can love her either way. A possible cure to vampirism is being hinted at in the show, however, so if Elena returns to being human, her choice and her lifestyle may be complicated once again. Regardless of who the heroine chooses, and the choice is always up to the heroine, the life she will lead and the adult she will become is directly tied to the man she chooses. No wonder it takes the heroine multiple books, movies, or episodes to decide who she wants. In reality, she is choosing who she will become. Whoever the heroine chooses resonates deeply with who the audience believes they should choose for themselves, and therefore what lifestyle it is appropriate to lead, and more, which lifestyle is more likely to be fulfilling and successful. It is telling that, in most cases, the heroine chooses the knight. So far, The Vampire Diaries is the only one of the three major franchises that still has the possibility of the heroine choosing the bad boy, since the series has not reached completion and the television series has diverged significantly from the books. No concrete conclusions about Alina's choice can be drawn at this time. In all three franchises, however, the love triangle is the embodiment of young adulthood. By its nature, it postpones the heroine's choice. Young adulthood is a state of suspended animation between childhood and adulthood, whereby an individual steps back from a final choice and surveys the options, abstaining from true responsibility and true adulthood. Once the heroine chooses, the story is over. She is an adult, and while her life may not be over, it is set in place, unchanging, signifying the completion of the rite of passage and the end of youth. This is also perhaps why vampires are so popular. Frozen in time as young adults, their adolescence is eternal. They are never forced to choose how they will spend their limited years, since, as immortal beings, they can pick every single option and explore it infinitely. The vampire, therefore, is a natural extension of the selfish, wild, alluring figure of Peter Pan, living in a world of endless summer, endless adventure, endless violence, and endless camaraderie. Although Peter Pan and vampires never changed, the world has changed greatly in the past century. The teenager was born as an age group, vilified and deified through film and television. The sexual revolution allowed for sexual acts to be depicted more graphically in media, creating a culture of sexual and emotional fantasy. Although women won civil rights and suffrage and became more and more educated, this merely shifted the divide between the sexes rather than repairing it, confusing gender roles and allowing for men to become commodified alongside women. With the economy preventing young adults from surviving without the financial help of their parents, many 20-somethings are at a loss to figure out how to move forward, what they should do with their lives, and even which terms to define themselves by, or what those terms mean in a modern world no longer bound by traditional rules and roles. Amidst this confusion, the love triangle serves as a parallel to real life, informing young women, consciously or unconsciously, about their choice between the traditional and the non-traditional. The question then is not, are these franchises good literature or media, um, or are they promoting the right message? The question is, who is listening to what these heroines are saying, and how will they act on that information? 
will America see a resurgence of traditional values, marriage, children, domestic roles, etc., for women, or will it see them abandoning even further traditional gender roles in favor of careers or other aspirations, or receiving conflicting messages from the heroines of separate franchises that use the same formula of the love triangle, will young women simply be more confused than they were before? What draws you to sci-fi as a genre? The endless possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the idea, uh, and I think Star Trek really kind of led the way on this, is that you can talk about the world as it currently is, our modern society, you know, war, politics, religion, um, in a a slightly safer context. Yeah. Um, You can, not that you're disguising the issue of it, but you can, you know, Battlestar Galactica, I think, did a really good job of this as well, of using modern politics even and 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 showing both sides of things even uh in in a a fantasy context or a a science fiction context so it's it's not as uh potentially enraging to audiences but it still makes you think and i think that's i think that's it is that it it makes people think about things because it's outside of the context they would normally think about yeah so it i i think it really can open up some interesting discussions about real things but in a you know fantasy world Right. Context. Yeah. Have you watched Black Mirror? No. Oh, you should. Okay. It's sort of like a modern Twilight Zone, but it's a lot darker. Okay. Um, but, I mean, that's a great example because that what you said about, um, you know, sci-fi being able to approach these serious, modern, relevant topics, but through this sort of lens of fantasy, I think it does that really well. Oh, and also yeah. um, alludes a lot to where we're going, like, in terms of technology. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess the show appears in at times to be 50 or 100 years in the future, but you're thinking, like, oh, like, that's not, that's where we're headed, right. like, in a very scary way, so. <laughs> um, how did you get into screenwriting? Um, uh, I, hmm, hmm. As a child, <laughs> I, I thought I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And so I, I, you know, saved up all my money, went to acting camps and classes and all this stuff. And then I realized I didn't actually like being on stage all that much. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wasn't, it's not that I wasn't good at it. It's just, like, I kind of was uncomfortable. It's weird. Yeah. And I mean, scary. <laughs> it, sometimes it was fun, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm not good at this. Um, so uh, that, and I, well, I was a huge reader. Uh, I, I, I just devoured books. Like, mm-hmm. I, I would, I'm, I was the kid who was, like, at recess, I was sitting under a canopy somewhere <laughs> in the rain in Seattle, uh, with a book. I didn't want to play. I wanted to read. Um, so that kind of led to writing short stories, which led to writing novels, which, um, but I also really love art. Like I, I I paint and sculpt and do things like that. Um, and I realized that film is where physical art and literature meet. I'm like, Oh, there's a whole new format for me to explore. Um, when did you make that realization? Uh, like, early high school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and my mom being the very insightful woman that she is, she actually, you know, um, encouraged me in this in high school, um, and took me out of school one day, um, to go to a screenwriting conference, like, (laughs) you know, took me out of school so I could go watch movies and talk about films with educated people. That's a good mom. She's amazing. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so I kind of fell in love with it Mm -hmm. more in high school and, and got into it there and, yeah. yeah, so where did you study? I went to Azusa Pacific University and double majored in English and film. Awesome. Yeah. 
And then I read that you had, um, you studied under Jack Gilbert of Warner Brothers. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, um, well, he ran the uh, Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, I'd say mm-hmm. that five times fast, um, for many years. But when I met him, he was, he was uh, teaching screenwriting at APU. Um, so I, I got to study under him. Unfortunately, he actually passed away while I was still a student there. Oh, yeah. um, he got sick unexpectedly and just, uh, just didn't get better, which was a, a huge tragedy. Yeah. And, um, just, I, I think I realized after he passed away more who he was and, and, uh, the, I just wish I'd, I'd been more intentional about, um, meeting with him one-on-one and, and getting his, his insight. Cause he actually went out of his way to, to meet with me a couple times about yeah. screenplays and stuff, and um, I just didn't take enough of uh, that opportunity to really pursue that. And um, he, yeah, he was an amazing man and just very kind too. Like, yeah, just very insightful. So so well read, and would talk about Aristotle in class, and you know, story struck. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Is there any particular like lesson or moment that you got from him that you really just like keep with you and? One of the big ones actually is not about writing. It's about criticizing writing. Mm. Um, so whenever we would write screenplays in class and, and, and critique each other, he had this method of um, good, bad, good. So whenever you have a negative criticism, you uh, proceed it and follow it with a positive criticism. Yeah. Even if it's a little one. Um, just because it's it's not just to be kind. It's, it's to... I think when people criticize art, they often... Um, forget to mention the part they liked. Right, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's harder to do sometimes. You need to remember to remain encouraging so that people continue to make art um, Mm -hmm. uh, while also giving them legitimate feedback about, you know, this didn't work. Um, And and to just to be careful with how you phrase it and and make sure that it's constructive criticism, not just tearing people down. Yeah. He had many other wonderful things to say, but that's really stuck with me. because even I struggle with that when people ask me for feedback on their screenplays. I, I tend to think, okay, this, this, and this, you did wrong or, you know, whatever. I'm like, no, wait a second. You also did this, this, and this right. I just forgot to mention those. So, right. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and then I recently started getting into writing for film and directing for film. And so I'm just kind of like a sponge right now trying to absorb as much as I can. So if you have any advice for like new or aspiring screenwriters, I would love to hear that. Um, one of the things that I am bad at and trying to be more disciplined about is taking my favorite movies or movies, mm. not, the movies that you wish you'd written. Yeah. You know, there's, there's like, for me, that's, um, like Hook. Yeah. Uh, Princess Bride, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> Star Wars. Um, and really dissecting what makes them work. Yeah. Um, not just on a writing level, but definitely on a writing level. Like literally write down the beats of the story and see what they are and yeah. where the turns are, where the twists are, where they set up something earlier and paid off in the end or you know, whatever. And then also how the filmmakers pulled that off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just dissecting movies, which is time consuming and not super fun, but really important. Um, yeah. Because otherwise you're not, you may not be moving forward, understanding the format and understanding why things Right. Yeah, because it's, it's easy to just be like, I love that, and that resonates with me, but it's harder to be like, but why? Or exactly. how? How yeah. did they make that happen? Yes. That's great. Um, and then what are you working on now? 
Uh, many things. I'm working on, uh, I'm trying to finish up a historical fantasy screenplay. Mm. Um, it's basically like uh, set during World War One, but it's Wendy Darling after she's grown up and gotten married and had a child. And it's about spy. It's like half comedic, half dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, there's this big plot against her and her husband, and she has to find the real traitors and play their name and all that kind of stuff. So there's that, and um, I'm doing a, a sort of near-future cyberpunk retelling of Sleeping Beauty. That sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> pretty cool. I'm, I'm excited about yeah. it. I have it all outlined, um, and I'm waiting to dive into it until I kind of wrap up a couple other things. Um, I, I just finished the first draft of a children's fantasy novel called Amelia and the Piper, which is very much inspired by, like, Peter Pan, Beauty and the Beast, Twelve Dancing Princesses, Little like, every fairy tale I kind of, like, drew something from. Yeah. So it's like an homage to, to all of... It's basically an homage to the stories of my childhood. Um, so I, I'm, I have that out to beta readers, and they're getting me feedback back. And uh, also finishing up the sequel to a book that I, I wrote in a series... And, um, oh, I'm starting a, oh, one that I'm really excited yeah. about is, uh, and I don't want to say too much about it because it's in the very early idea stage where, like, I don't, I don't want to jinx it almost. Yeah. But, uh, a sort of genre blending multi-format autobiographical documentary, documentary, uh, so it's like if a variety show could be a documentary, it's it's that. Oh, it's, got, it's like interview pieces, um, yeah, and animation pieces, and dance pieces, and musical pieces, and 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 um, so it's like humorous, but also very serious. Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to figure out. So I've, I've got like I don't know, like a ten page treatment on that, and then mm-hmm. I have like a sixteen page treatment on this one section that's literally going to be two minutes long in the final product. So I'm like I'm breaking down each section into treatments right now. Um, figuring out, uh, I want to, I want to film like a, um, fundraising video for it, but I want it to be like a musical, like I, we write a song, dance to it and film it as the fundraising video, which itself is going to take some time and money. Right, right, right. People chipping in. That's Um, exciting. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm really excited about it, but it keeps getting bigger. Yeah. And slightly more terrifying as I, as I keep thinking of things. Um, but I'm also... I'm very excited about it in I a way that I haven't been excited about something in a while. Yeah. So I, I, fingers crossed on, on that. Honestly, I think excited and terrified are the best things to be. <laughs> if you're, yes. like, if you're excited but you're not terrified, it's probably too easy. Mm-hmm. If you're mm-hmm. terrified and you're not excited, then why are you doing it? Right. So I think that, uh, that sounds really great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope, I hope, it, I hope I get the chance to, to attempt it. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be really, I think it'd be really awesome. all right we're gonna wrap up this episode with chase smith he was featured on our first episode beginnings part one he is a recent mtsu graduate and aspiring writer who specializes in horror fantasy and science fiction he is sharing a short story with us called The Tea Kettle Nights, which is based in the same universe that his upcoming novel is based in. So he's sort of playing around with that world and introducing these new characters. And uh, uh, as opposed to last time when he read a horror piece, we're now getting a fantasy piece in honor of the magic theme. So here is Chase Smith with The Tea Kettle Nights. 
Not so much noise, Nella. We're in broad daylight, you know. Nella lifted herself over the edge of the wooden bin, feet kicking at the air as if it would get her close to the bottom. As tiny as she was, it was a testament to her balance that she hadn't slipped face first into the rubbish. Her voice emanated from the vessel, echoing and far too loud. Quit your belly aching, Kai. There's a day's lunch in here, maybe more. Kiger fidgeted with the hood of his cloak, taking periodic glances down, down the alley. Beyond where the cobblestone met the scant torchlight, there were the midday crowds. King's Court was a crowded district any given time before curfew, but only got worse around noon. The inevitable influx of travelers were here, looking for a tavern not rife with cut throats and sellswords. Actual roads that didn't reek of rat piss and tanneries, and more importantly, they sought a smidgen of class in the two-cliff town of Minnows by Down. How he bloody hated it. Kiger let his burlap rucksack slowly drop off his shoulder as he leaned against the wooden bin, crossing his arms and trying his best not to breathe in the ever-present scent of filth. He looked as if a raccoon took on a human form. His scrawny frame beneath the cloak was dressed in dirty gray breeches and a matching jerk in a size too big. He had small hands and feet, bare, dirty, and sporting untrimmed nails. His face had sharp features save for his round nose, shaggy black hair, and most notably, a black mask of sorts around his eyes. It appeared as if a few handfuls of black powder had been smudged on his face and never washed away. They were filled with careful scrutiny, easily misconstrued as contempt, but never looking away from the throngs of people in the streets. Fetch what you're going to fetch so we can leave, he whispered impatiently over his shoulder. Nella pushed herself back to solid ground, the bin snapping shut behind her with a loud clunk. She was a full foot shorter than her brother and nearly as boyish. Her hair was cut short, but with a complete lack of a delicate hand, no two tufts of golden blonde the same length. She had yet to find a cloak like her brother, instead settling for an oversized patchwork tunic with a comical amount of pockets sewn in. She, too, was made to go unnoticed, if only in size, but a very notable feature of hers was a single glove, tan leather suitable for gardening and little else. The girl raised an eyebrow at her brother, munching at the browned remnants of an apple core as she did so. You rush to get here before the cocks crow, finally find a place that doesn't burn their filth or leave it on the streets, and now you want to leave. She unapologetically talked with her mouth full, the occasional chewed bit flying out as juice dripped down her chin. Kai, sometimes you make no sense to me, he grimaced. First of all, stop eating the core. I hear it's used for fish poison. Good thing I ain't a fish, she replied innocently, chomping at what remained. Anyway, if we stay here any longer, a patrol is bound to come by eventually. They always do. We'll leave soon, I swear. The words left her mouth dismissively as she planted a foot against the bin, already ready in another leap. If we're getting a bite of lunch today, this is where we're going to get it. I mean, <laughs> I've got four biscuits in my pockets that barely got touched. Surely there's more than that. Kiger's stomach grumbled audibly, betraying any attempts at staving off hunger. Anything else in there? Maybe half a chicken towards the bottom, she said with a slight grin. Couldn't reach it for the life of me. Oh, damn it all, he murmured to himself. Prop it open again, I'm going in. Nella threw back the top once more, then he easily hopped over the top. The scent was enough to make him tear up as he landed, feet compacting the garbage with a sound somewhere between a crunch and the squishing of tomatoes. He covered his mouth and nose, surveying the mare and mane's recent waste beneath him. See what I mean? Nella called out. Kiger shushed loudly, the noise echoing off the cramped wooden walls. Keep your voice down, will you? I know. 
You might very well be standing above it, she said in exasperation. It was in something tan and all chipped up. Ah, good, he answered flatly. Nothing more I love in chicken than bits of pottery, really. Beats what we'd get begging. Tiger opened his mouth as if to retort, then snapped it shut again. After a month or so of begging from place to place, the generosity of others hadn't proven to be fruitful. If they were close to the surface of the cliffs, most couldn't be bothered to pay starving children any mind. Any lower, and there would be more beggars than folk to beg from. Of course, nearly anyone who got a decent look at either of them would be likely to walk off as fast as they could. Halfkin had a way of scaring people. So it was Nella's idea, at least when she told it, to take just a bit more initiative. Kiger dashed aside the refuse at his feet by the fistful, letting his thoughts override the smell of rot. Eventually, he cleared away some splintered bits of chairs and off-colored mush that could have once passed for turnips, and found the skeletal remains of a chicken. There were still some shreds of white meat and brown skin, lukewarm and holding fast to the bone. A regular bounty. Got it, sis, he called over his shoulder. Anything else in here, or... Drums. The distant rhythm of booming toms. Kiger froze for a moment, praying to whatever gods were listening that it had only been himself kicking the sides. Alas, it came closer, accompanied by heavy-footed marching. Even Nella went quiet, slowly stepping away from the bin's opening. She rested a hand upon the side, and Kiger listened. One, two, three knocks, a breath's width apart. Filth erupted all around as Kiger hopped out of the garbage, breaking into a sprint upon hitting the ground and snatching up his pack. Nella followed close behind, frantically looking over her shoulder for just a moment. Okay, you were right, now what? The alley widened, slightly into two paths, one wrapping around the end into the street and the other leaning towards the drums. Naya couldn't see it, but her brother cracked a smile. Thought of that earlier. In an instant, Kiger skidded along the ground before turning right, stirring up motes of dust as he did so. While the ladder to the mare and main's roof had been broken long ago, the shoddy brickwork beneath it was more than enough. Kiger whipped his gaze to both ends of the alley, then leapt onto the wall with a grunt. The gaps in the wall made perfect footholds, and he quickly scrambled up the side to the blackened shingles of the roof. Quickly, he braced his feet on the edge, set aside his pack, and offered a hand to Nella. She was several feet beneath him, about half the distance he had traversed, but still at risk of a sizable fall. She furrowed her brow and leapt. Kiger had to lunge, knuckles white as he grasped the roof's edge with one hand and Nella's delicate hand with the other. I told you not to close your eyes when you jump, he said through gritted teeth. And I told you to find a better way up. She flailed uselessly until Kiger hauled her up and onto the roof. Nella swallowed hard, gripping the, gripping the roof behind her with both hands as her ankles wobbled. Oh, relax, Kiger chuckled. Fifteen feet up is nothing. Yeah, sure, she said meekly. What's next? He nodded around the bend. We get the best view. They crept around the edge of the roof, towards the pounding drums in the streets. King's Court from above was a drab district despite all attempts to make it seem otherwise. No matter how many velvet banners hoisted in the name of the Freelands, it couldn't hide the crude buildings carved into immovable rocks or the poorly lit tents. The underside of the cliff, a gnarled network of long dead roots and boulders instead of any sunlight, failed to improve things either. Still, every citizen seemed to have gathered for the procession, forming a surprisingly organized line in front of the rows of storefronts and homes. Then the royal guard came into view. Impeccably polished amber and gray shimmered in the light of the lanterns. Metal clanked against metal as sixteen men marched in lockstep. 
Each of the perfectly postured knights bore a helmet to hide their face and a buckler on their right arm, jutting out like a stalagmite and bearing the faint emblem of a boulder. The crowd around them looked equal parts in awe and afraid, stone still and at complete attention. Why do they have to do this all the time anyway? Nella asked as they sat, legs dangling over the edge of the procession as it slowly passed. Seems like a waste. Kyger smirked. I guess they'd call it keeping the peace. The more they show off, the less people are inclined to go against them. So, have a parade every now and then, there's peace and minnows by down, she stated flatly. Never knew it was so easy. Don't forget shooing beggars off the street, her brother added. And if they get a funny mark on them, maybe, maybe get an extra kick in the ribs for them. Nella shook her head, her mouth drawn a hard line. Doesn't make sense. <sighs> maybe when we're older, let's make some tea and not think about it too much. She gave a quick nod as both children began to rummage through their respective packs. You have enough water for it, right? She held up a small, sweet-smelling bundle of cloth in her tiny hands. You know how hard that is to find. Kiger had already found his water skin, a half-full, mushy lump of stitched leather. We'll go hunting for some more tonight. May actually have to suck it up and go begging. He sounded less than hopeful. Minnows by down hadn't had a hard rain in a little over a week, and as always... There was an unfathomable drop between the cliffs and the nearest river. Not here, we won't, Nella sighed, eyes drifting towards the rear of the procession on the street. Kiger shrugged. True enough. A brilliant flash of copper, faint dots of torchlight from below dancing along the surface. The boy gently lifted a kettle from his rucksack, delicately setting it down by the handle. It was impeccably clean, just as it had been when they found it. Probably the only thing in their home not charred or reduced to ash. Speaking truthfully here, I'd do anything to be where they are, he said, emptying a portion of the water skin into the kettle. Kiger let the sentence hang for a moment, procuring a pair of beaten pewter cups from his bag. He glanced up to see his sister stare at him, brow furrowed. It would be nice to march around and make an arse of yourself, sure. Well, maybe I could change things, he persisted. You remember the stories, knights protect people, uphold peace, chivalry, and the like. And they're stories for a reason. Now give it some heat, will you? Kiger blinked twice, turning to the kettle as if he had forgotten it completely in his thoughts. He lifted it again and held the fingertips of his left hand just underneath. Suddenly, the cold black marks around his eyes flared to life. Just beneath the skin, white light eclipsed the dark, a slow shimmer that quickly shone as bright as a torch. Heat emanated from his hand, hot enough to distort the air beneath the kettle. A few short moments later, and the soft sound of bubbling water could be heard. Nella stared in silence, then frowned in her reflection in the heated copper. Kiger noticed. What? That? That what? What you're doing? It makes the whole thing impossible. Making tea? Nella sighed in exasperation before tossing spices into the boiling water, cringing as a few sizzling drops splashed across her face. Funny. I meant using your gift, Kai. Second thing so much as look at that mark, forget it. His mouth drew a hard line, the glow around his eyes slowly fading. I like to think not every man in the King's Guard is that daft. He poured some of the fresh tea into a mug, steam pouring from the rim. Maybe that way of thinking will die down. Just get some tea before it cools down. Nella raised an eyebrow, taking hold of her piping hot cup. She removed the mitt on her other hand with her teeth to reveal another soft glow. Her tiny hand illuminated, strands of similar white light that snaked up her arm and ending just beneath her elbow. The faintest trace of frost began to form on the pewter, 
a soft white from the cold snap that her fingers brought forth. Kai watched her in silence, envious that the markings were so much easier to hide. Her eyes met his as the light faded. You forget I prefer it cold, she replied snidely. He shrugged. Better to boil it and make sure the water's clean. We got this bit from a puddle, you know, Nell added before taking a sip. Outside the tannery, no less. Cleaner, then. A scream rang out from the crowd below, loud enough to be heard over the pounding of the drums. Kiger nearly spilled his tea as he gave a slight start, his eyes almost instinctively scanning the tops of the heads below. He saw a young woman run up from the procession, frizzy light blonde hair and eyes wide with fear. What do you suppose happened? asked Kiger, more to himself than his sister. Thief, she answered nonchalantly. There he goes now. Her brother caught just a glimpse of the man, the tail of his black cloak and the back of his heels barreling through a nearby alleyway after pushing aside those who blocked it. Nearly seconds after, two of the guards broke formation and gave chase, their amber plate and greaves clanking noisily with every step. Kiger rose slightly and squinted into the expanses of the rooftops and narrow back streets, doing his best to see over the roof's edge. Where's he heading to now, I wonder? Quintessent. He frowned, glancing over his shoulder. Pardon? Nella took a sip of her tea, wiping her mouth with her oversized glove. Quintessent Street, she clarified bluntly. No matter how many twists and turns he makes, he'll end up there. Not that it's our problem. Her brother frowned, eyes focusing on the soft, scattered aura of torchlight. The thief would outpace the guards, surely, even if they were tripled in number and not weighed down by gaudy armor. No one on ground level would catch up, but maybe by roof. Kai? He seemed not to hear, visions of steel and valor clashing like thunder in his head. Any good soul would try to help, but... Maybe even fewer would give chase. How many would go undaunted, especially when some villain was a few steps from getting away? A knight wouldn't dare let that fear guide him. Damn the fates and bring justice where it's needed. Nella let out a sharp huff, wrapping her foot against the shingles. Kai, don't even think about it. He slowly turned to face her, inexplicably smirking. He would never see us coming from the rooftops. She shook her head rapidly. Kai, we are two unarmed children, not knights. His eyes flitted to the copper kettle, nodding thoughtfully at his own reflection. I'll think of something. Don't do it. And who will if I won't? The king's guard, she replied through gritted teeth. Don't you do it. Watch my stuff, okay? With kettle in hand and without another word, Kiger leapt from where he stooped, scaling the roof with long, hard strides. Upon reaching the top, he broke out into a proper sprint, wind beating at his face as his Worn leather boots barely scraped the shingles. Get back here, Kai! His sister shouted behind him. He reached the edge and leapt, shoving himself off and into the open air. There was an inherent rush that Kiger loved, a few seconds out of space and time above the streets below. Other than the occasional startled onlooker, there was no one to stop him. No need to hide or scrounge, no eye contact to avoid out of fear of a halfkin being discovered. Nothing but raw speed. Kiger's feet landed firmly on a neighboring roof, only for him to break out into another sprint again. Kiger smiled wistfully. If only he could always take the fast route. He continued for several minutes, a blur of gray following anything remotely metallic. Eventually, he heard running a few yards behind him, an uneven, clearly tired pace. Kiger skidded to a stop on a flat wooden roof, leaning on a nearby chimney, and steering clear of the billowing smoke. Warm and acrid like an apothecary. 
He warily turned around to see a flash of daffodil yellow narrowly land on the roof. There's a reason Kyger almost never traveled the fast way, and its name was Nella. I told you, she panted. Ought to do it, Kai. Nearly found him now, Kyger lied. I followed a couple patrols for a while, but he'll be ahead of him by a good bit. So nothing, she concluded. Fan-bloody-tastic. Truly the best king our mule's men have to offer. Oh, I'm finding him, he replied, barely a whisper as he scanned the streets. I can promise you that. Sure, give him a wallop with that kettle you're lugging around when you find him. Till then, I'm going back for our things before... Suddenly, Kiger took off again, the lustrous kettle clinging dully against his hip as he picked up speed once more. Nella remained still for a moment, staring blankly with her mouth still open, and then took off after her brother, still tearing across the rooftops due south. Oh, not this again, she called out in exasperation. Get back here, and he shushed her as loudly as he could, pointing at ground level beneath her. Reluctantly, she stopped and looked. The alley beneath her was relatively empty, save for a rows of doors, stray rubbish, and the occasional stray cat. But there was a single silhouette approaching. He was a tall man, cloaked in the color of ink. Not much else was distinguishable from that distance, but there were minute sounds as he drew near. Heavy boots on cobblestone as he ran, and the jingling of heavy coin purse. Nella turned back to her brother, only to see him leap off the edge. Her heart sank for just a moment as she sprinted to the edge, but curiously, there was no hard landing. She peeked over the edge just in time to see her brother bouncing off a deep green awning. Something frilly and out of place anywhere but the capital city, but incredibly springy. Kiger had already started running as he hit the ground, towards the mouth of the alley. She ran her hands through her patchy hair and took a deep breath. Not that far of a jump, she told herself unconvincingly. Like skipping rope. Yeah. She let her weight carry her down, eyes shut tight all the way. There was the rush of wind, followed by the tight embrace of the tarp. However, Nello was much lighter than her brother. She was launched back in the air with a yelp, spinning before landing hard on her bottom. She sucked in air as the pain washed over, then a lean body lifted her up, letting her rest on its shoulder. Took that a bit rough, Kiger whispered with concern. She nodded, eyes still watering as she shrugged away from him. Just a bit. I can walk, thanks. Good. I need your help. She opened her mouth to protest, but shut it again as she saw how urgent his stride was. He stopped just short of the main road, flinging water from the kettle as hard as he could. Nella's eyes narrowed as she did so, shifting from her brother, the line of wet stone, and back again. So you've gone and lost your mind now, she stated in a dry whisper. Look, Kai, I've literally busted my arse trying to catch up with you, and if you'd so kindly leave here immediately, it would just make my day. Or, he countered, hanging the kettle's handle from his wrist, we could make that thief take a harder fall than you did. She stared at him in genuine confusion, then back to the cobblestone. Everything was a deep gray, causing the wet streak to blend in perfectly. She walked forward, half smiling despite herself. I wonder. She removed the leather glove from her hand, revealing the black stripes running along her arm as they began to illuminate. She crouched, frigid, visible air rolling off her extended hand before becoming ethereal. In a matter of seconds, the wet ground chilled and sparkled with the sheen of slick ice. This doesn't work. You owe me, she murmured. Kiger smirked, eyes never leaving the open street. Don't I always? They waited, hardly breathing in the stillness of the desolate passage. The clicks of the man's boots grew louder, accompanied by shaky breathing. The siblings remained still as statues each taking a wall and hoping, almost childly wishing, the icy gravel would expand. Clack, clack, swoosh.
Kiger almost didn't see the thief until he fell. As hard as he had been running, he would have been a pitch-black blur blowing past in an instant. Instead, all traction was lost as he fell forward. So fast, he never had a chance to even scream. Nella cringed at the impact, but Kiger didn't even try to hide his smile at the man's still body. Thought that worked. He murmured slightly. Excellent job, Sir Kai, she managed to reply. You knocked out someone who may or may not be a thief. Kiger slowly walked over to him, minding the ice as he did so. First of all, you knocked him out. Secondly, he would have passed through here eventually. Lastly, I recognize the cloak. Dear brother, it's a solid black cloak. It's not terribly rare. Just trust me, please, he insisted, stooping down to collect the coin purse on his belt. At least the worst is up. Suddenly, the man's gloved hand snatched his wrist, wrenching it away painfully. The man rose as the boy tried to yank his hand back, wiping his face with his free hand. He had the face of a mangy dog, a multitude of scars and patchy black hair forming a permanent snarl. Sticky, still trickling lines of blood ran down his crooked nose, and his murky, rust-colored eyes glared at the child. Just what are you trying to pull? His voice was harsh, the crunch of dirt underfoot. Kiger glared back, still flailing at the scoundrel's grip. You stole that gold! I saw you in the square! It's none of your concern, I reckon, he countered, tone of voice eerily even. There was a golden opportunity for some coin, and I rightfully took it. Nothing to get harassed by filthy little street urchins over, eh? Please don't hurt him, Nella called out, frozen with fear in the alley. He didn't mean to... Did I ask you to speak, lass? He snapped. This is a conversation between me and your raccoon-eyed friend. Nothing concerning you. He looked back to the boy, eyes falling upon the glimmering kettle dangling from the opposite hand. Absent-mindedly, he released the boy, allowing him to scramble back a few feet and grinning wickedly. Pretty little bit of silver you hawk in there, he uttered, avidly staring at his own reflection in it. Kiger held the copper vessel behind his back. It's not for sale. The man raised an eyebrow, taking a step forward. See, I missed the part where this was up for debate, boy, he chuckled. And you lot do owe me, trying to rob me when I was down and all. Kiger didn't move an inch, glaring defiantly. Hang around here long and the king's guard's going to come looking for you. The thief laughed, reaching for something inside his cloak as he inched closer. <laughs> Not at all. Got all the time in the world. Now if you want to live, I suggest you hand over your... The ink-like markings on Kiger's eyes flared with light, the thief's eyes almost instantaneously widening in fear. Please leave me and my sister alone, he replied quietly. I'm not asking you again. The man unsheathed a dagger from his belt, pointing the worn, filthy blade at Kiger's neck. Whatever you're doing, you better knock it off, he stammered. Give me the damn kettle, you shit-stained little halfkin! The boy didn't move. He got closer, swiping the knife at the air. I'm warning you! His eyes went from the knife to his sister's watchful eyes, then back to the thief. A man twice his size and with more evident cowardice than he had ever seen. A smile came across Kiger's face. Two guards would have been overkill. No problem. Kiger thrust the kettle forward, steam filling the air. Scalding hot water landed on the man's front, causing him to wail in agony and clutch his face. Blindly, he lunged with the knife, not even grazing the boy. Just as he wiped away the burning, aromatic liquid, a blow to the right temple sent him to the ground. Kiger swung the kettle by the handle, bashing his would-be assailant upside the head. Without another thought, without so much as a glance back at the man to see if he was staying down, he and Nella ran. Ran back down the alley they started in and turned down the twisting streets whenever possible. 
There were errant thoughts, hopes that the guards would find the thief while he was down, but mostly there was relief. Nella caught up to her brother, and to her surprise, she saw him beaming with pride. Despite everything, she smiled too. That was actually impressive, she said breathlessly. Told you I'd find him, he replied, just like any night worth of salt would. <laughs> of course, she laughed. For chivalry and all things trite, okay? Nothing trite about it. The two of them quarreled lightheartedly as they ran, side by side, through and through. All right, welcome back to Story Creatures. How's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm I'm a little tired, but you know that always happens. Uh, I've been doing not much other than writing, so I, I really don't have an excuse to be tired. Right. Oh, for those of you who might just be uh, picking up on this episode, Chase was on episode one, beginnings part one. So we kind of covered the basics of uh, what he what he does, and we talked about horror. Um, and this so is completely different. Totally different uh, <laughs> fantasy, magical yeah. sort of elements here, appropriate right. for the episode. Right. So um, tell me a little bit about putting the story together. Uh, putting the story together, um, it was kind of a long road writing this one, but not for the reasons you think. Uh, this takes place in the same universe as my novel project. Um, I might have I addressed it on the last one. I, I honestly don't think I did. That might have got cut out, but... Uh, it was a, it's a fantasy novel called Strawman's Bluff, and uh, just yesterday, I think I've reached about halfway through it. Yeah. And hopefully I'll be getting that published soon. Uh, Exciting. Sooner rather than later. And I wanted, I knew for the second project, I didn't want like a true sequel. I wanted a collection of short stories in that same universe. Mm -hmm. And universe is kind of rough, kind of a rough explanation of it, but this story takes place in a town called Minnows by Down, and it... Minnows by Down is two cliffs that have mostly been hollowed out, and they are attached by a ton of rope bridges. And underneath the rope bridges is a very long fall down to the river, and water usually has stuff that's bad news in it in this world. But uh, that's, that's something that didn't get too clear here, but at the same time, that's the universe. And this takes place in just a small piece of that town. So. Gotcha. And that's where most of the novel takes place. Well, I think this might be something for us to talk about that we didn't really, I don't think we touched on the last time we talked, but just the process of world building, which is especially important in fantasy. Yeah. And um, I mean, how do you go about that? Like, do you, do you first think of characters? Do you first think of a story or the world? Or does it all sort of... Typically, if you don't think of characters first people aren't going to be interested in reading like a whole like setting like you can it's put true. as much settings uh, you can make as much set pieces as you want but if the characters aren't interested people aren't really going to read and it's not necessarily if they're cool things but you know it's what you can say with things being different like half can like in the story are just offshoots of humans mm -hmm. like something happened with i don't want to call it a creation story but something similar with this world that there's a few isolated half can and some of them are more dangerous than just making tea or, like, cooling down water or something like that. So that's why, you know, they're hunted and they're persecuted and they're not actually that different from humans, ironically. And that's something, it's kind of something to say with it. Um, as far as setting goes, I think of just, I try to think of stuff that's different, man. Like, I don't think I've seen anything kind of like Minnows by Down in terms yeah. of, like, my writing. Uh, in terms of, like, creation stories, like... It always helps to look at, like, mythology. It yeah. always helps to, like, think of, like, other folk tales or something like that. Um, the Bible. I mean, honestly, there's some, like, really, really interesting stories that, like, happen in there, so. Yeah. Well, would you say, then, that 
um, your focus being on the characters and making the characters solid first, that, that you then bu- build the world for them specifically? Yes. That's definitely what I'm saying. Like, okay. The, th- the thing with characters, like, I write them kind of like how I do with anything else. Like, it's... I don't really have a process for writing good characters. I'm just like, who sounds interesting? Like, what's a cool trait? Like, get, give people motivations. Like, uh, heroes especially, villains too. Like, it just, you know, it, it goes both ways on that. But yeah, like, just go nuts with your setting, especially if you're writing fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what, what do you think are the major differences writing for fantasy versus, let's say, you had similar characters or a similar storyline in mind that wasn't for fantasy. What's the big difference going to be? The big difference for fantasy, and I think a lot of this goes, it does go back to the world. Mm-hmm. Because you want to make something that's, like, in a way, truly alien to, like, what we know on what we know on like planet earth 2016 like you want to you want to make something more grand or like wider in scope you want to make it seem like there's more than the setting you're in right now uh you know as long as the characters are good but it's you know the entire setting like can be expanded on like i think tolkien has a really good example of that it's like all the set pieces and all the set pieces in like the hobbit or something like you know they expand mm-hmm. and you know they they do that in great detail for the most part don't watch movie two and three. Uh, <laughs> no. No, 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 no. I actually just had this conversation with somebody else recently about Lord of the Rings and how much we valued the, when it, you know, when they were in theaters and how exciting that was. I guess I was in middle school. I was probably like 12 yeah. when they started playing in theaters oh, and no. how much we just like loved and it was so exciting. Who was that? Because a lot of people believed it couldn't have been shot. Like it was just too, it was too grand a scope and there was too much to cover, but like... There was so much Lord of the Rings that people didn't think they could be filmed. And the first three were great, and part one of The Hobbit was fine, but, like, they tried to just blow it up too much. Because in yeah. film nowadays, a trilogy makes money. Yeah. It, plain and simple. I'm surprised Harry Potter Part 7 wasn't three parts. Yeah. Because they would have tried that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But definitely love Lord of the Rings, the originals, yeah. when they came out. And uh, had the Legolas lunchbox. <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, yes, very, very good things. So what do you think the difference is uh, fantasy in literature versus fantasy in film or television? Do you think there are any things you can do with literature that you can't do on the screen? That's a really tough question. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, like, you could get multiple points of view across in yeah. uh, literature slightly better, but I think Game of Thrones does that pretty well. Mm. In terms of, uh, like, the series. but um, I don't know. That's really tough. Um, I think, in a lot of ways, you can tell more stories in a book than you can on, t- uh, can on TV. And that's solely because of, like, the time you get to tell it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and I guess, too, for me at least, when I'm reading fantasy, it's um, very easy for me to get into the world and believe it on paper. Right. Um, but, of course, much more difficult to pull that off. There's stuff that won't come across in, like, TV or something. A lot of times for budget reasons. Like, back to Game of Thrones, there was a battle in season two, I think it was, that Tyrion just knocked out, and you never see that battle, because guess what? We can't afford a battle yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's sad. So, what else do you have in the works? Well, um, like I said, there's Straw Man's Bluff, which is going to be my first novel project. Uh, the first big one. And I'm also working on a science fiction a science fiction type of short story now. It's called I Rust Like Crazy. Ooh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, 
it has a lot to do with uh, computers becoming self-aware. Okay. Because there's, I've heard a lot of stories on that that actually genuinely creep me out. Like, you've heard of, like, the first, uh, have you heard of the first computer that's been recorded, like, gaining, like, self-awareness or, like, consciousness like that? That, like, lady robot? I no, saw a video no, no. of this, like, ugh, I'm probably thinking of something different. Uh, if it's some Uncanny Valley stuff, no. This was like three boxes in a room, basically. No, no, no. Right. But uh, there were three of there were three of them lined up. Two of they were all supercomputers. Two of them were programmed to speak. No, wait, wait, I got that wrong. Whoops. Uh, <laughs> two of them were not programmed to speak. One of them was, and they asked, "Can you speak?" The first two obviously didn't say anything. The second one, the the third one was like, "Uh, I don't know." No, wait. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, just the fact that it had to reconsider and, like, thought of that, it knew. Yes, the thing was destroyed, so don't worry about it. Um, we're not going to have any Asimov-related mishaps on that. But Yeah, I was thinking I was thinking about, like, a robot that, like, worked in an office or something. <laughs> and out of, as soon as it became self-aware, the staff kind of freaked out. So they, like, had it, like, stay in the closet on most nights. So I'm... I'm not sure if it's going to, like, turn to horror towards the end or not. Like, I'm, I've been thinking about it. Like, it might be a little more, like, dry dry humor. Yeah, it sounds like it could go. But with, like, mm-hmm. you know, with that kind of humor, you can throw in horror elements. Yeah. But not have to use all, like, the tropes of horror. Just, right. like, add some kick. That sounds really funny. I don't even know how I'm pacing it out yet. It might be, like, in an interview format or something. Yeah. That sounds like it'd be a funny short film, too. Mm-hmm. To have the, the robots... The video I was thinking of was, like, um, they made this robot lady, you know, essentially just a robot, but they put a weird skin face on her and stuff, and she was able to conversate and answer questions and stuff, and at one point, um, you know, one of the people was like, so, you know, what's going to happen with robots? Like, what's the future? And she said something along the lines of, um, we will put you all in the people zoo, but... (laughs) I will come visit you and stuff like that. That's not cool, man. Like, that's not a I'll send it to you. I I, I take that very seriously. <laughs> I am very afraid of robots and monkeys because in both <laughs> cases, they are stronger and smarter than me. I totally forgot you were afraid of monkeys. That's Only because they're so intelligent and they're so similar to us, but yet stronger and with, like, huge teeth. That freaking... Everyone should be afraid of monkeys. Yeah, like, in, I think... The record should go out if anyone, like, tries to keep them as a pet and put funny sweaters on them. Yeah, that's going to look cute in a picture, but mm -mm, no, don't do that. No. Have you seen those GIFs going around of people just shoving robots? Like, there's GIFs of something Mm -hmm. that can, like, recover if they've been, like, knocked off balance, and there's just people shoving the shit out of them. And I'm like, this will go really bad someday. (laughs) They'll shove you uh, a lot farther and a lot harder, bro. No. They're just certain things I don't. I wouldn't mess with. Like I wouldn't mess with robots. I wouldn't mess with big monkeys, and I wouldn't mess with um, what are those things called? Oh, Ouija boards. Yeah, don't mess. <laughs> I got a I got a friend of mine who's like deathly afraid of those. So I know. Well, it's just that. like why? Because <laughs> best case scenario, nothing happens. Worst case scenario, you've opened a rift between <laughs> our world and the next, and that doesn't just close <laughs> because you put the you put the. Parker Brothers box away, like, come on. It just seems like a terrible idea. I guess, like, the older I get, the more, like, during my day, I just see or hear things and think, no, that's a bad idea. 
No, I heard, that's a bad idea. I heard a report from somebody who used a Ouija board, and they, they got this, like, Italian kid to, like, ask uh, answer a bunch of questions. And the worst part was that, like, this Italian boy knew all this stuff about the guy using the Ouija board, like, knew, like, how old he... Uh, Stuff from, like, years back that he couldn't have possibly known if they were faking it. Apparently, he had picked up some ghost on his trip to Italy that came back. That's the only, like, thing they could come up with. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I didn't think it worked. Like, the grudge. Like, it's like yeah, you, you go to the right. house or something like that. And then it, you're just like, I'm safe. I'm going to go back to my apartment. And then the ghost is like, nah. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> It's a cool idea. I just wouldn't mess. I just don't mess with any of that stuff. <laughs> I love horror and sci-fi as a genre, but if it came down to like, <laughs> if a robot was approaching me, or like we ever get to the point where we can have like robots doing our laundry and stuff for us, I'll just pass. I'll just probably <laughs> not. <laughs> I mean, get a Roomba at least. Like that thing's not going to be. Oh, uh, that's different. It's like flat little BB-8. The worst you could do is like trip over it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cats and kittens, that is the show today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to know more about either of our artists, you can go to storycreaturespodcast.tumblr.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can send those to storycreaturespodcast at gmail.com. And we also have a Facebook page, which you can like if you want to see updates about new episodes and submissions. And I'll be posting submissions for the next episode pretty soon here. But I did want to go ahead and announce I've been thinking about it a lot lately and I'm really thankful that I've had the experience of making this podcast and I've met a lot of really interesting creative people I wouldn't have met before and gotten to know some of my artistic friends better. But the time commitment is uh, bigger than I thought it would be and with a lot of different um, film projects and writing projects coming up this spring and this summer... I've decided to keep Story Creatures as a mini-series, and so I think I'll probably do two to four more episodes and then cap it off. Um, And like I said, as much as I've loved doing this, it's just become a bigger commitment than I want it to be, but I am so thankful that I've had this experience and I'm thankful for everyone listening. So if you're one of those people who said, hey, I want to do a story, I want to do the show, I'd love to try this out, get your shit together and send me something because there's only going to be a few more episodes left.